0: So this morning we're going to be looking at a passage that is Uh, Well read, you've seen it on t-shirts, I would guess. If you don't have a bumper sticker, you probably have a coffee mug maybe at some time that has uh, these passages printed on it. They're, They're passages with which we're very familiar. And I am so grateful, especially when the promises of God are articulated so clearly in Scripture. And this is one of those Scriptures that very clearly articulates one of the precious promises of God if we have a heart of faith and willing to respond and simply put, what we're going to learn this morning from this passage is that we will experience the peace of God during anxiety if we create a practical rhythm of prayer. We will experience the peace of God during anxiety. If we create a practical rhythm of prayer. Now, I want to make a statement from the very beginning. I am not saying that the only thing you might need is a practical rhythm of prayer. I am saying for the follower of Jesus, who wants to cooperate with the Holy Spirit... Who is using everything in our lives to conform us to, to to work for the good of our being conformed to the image of the Son? Then we want to seriously consider what Paul means by his instruction of, of of cultivating a practical rhythm of prayer. But sometimes some of you may need a practical rhythm of prayer and a visit to your doctor. Uh, sometimes we might need a practical rhythm of prayer and a visit to a therapist. I am not taking away from these other gifts that God has given us, and the other people that He's He's equipped to be the means through which He communicates His wisdom. I have availed, I have addressed my anxiety spiritually, but I have also addressed my anxiety uh, with my doctor and uh, who's, I think, sitting in the room, and I've addressed my anxiety with uh, a therapist. So I've availed myself of all of these avenues, and God has used all of these to address that reality. So uh, that is not to say that other means aren't necessary, but it is to say, don't neglect what the gift that God has given us through a practical rhythm of prayer to begin to set a foundation to overcoming any challenges that we might have in anxiety. I mean, even my therapist that I work with says, you know, one of the key components in psychological health that they found is uh, it can be very healthy to be part of a faith community and to be practicing rhythms of stillness and prayer and quiet can do incredible benefits to one's mental health. So I'm not talking about Either or, I'm thinking both and. I'm not talking about spiritual bypassing where we just be spiritual and we don't pretend like we don't need doctors and therapists and friendships. But what I am saying that this Passage certainly celebrates, and we should never be cynical or discount the power of, of responding to the scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit and cultivating a practical rhythm of prayer that then empowers us to experience the supernatural peace of God in every circumstance because we have given ourselves over to walking with God in the midst of our suffering through prayer. Now, anxiety is something we can't get away from. Anxiety is the pervasive atmosphere of contemporary America. And and as I've gone over this sermon, I've told myself and chastised myself, I'm not going to go off on any nerdy rant, so I'll try to keep it briefly. But my friends, we've got to be smart about that. Our society will continue To promote an atmosphere of anxiety because the people who want to control us will do so through our fear and anxiety. And the people that want to separate our money from us and put it into their pocket will do so by exploiting our fear and anxiety. Therefore, the reality of fear and anxiety and the opportunities to be reminded of all the things we should be anxious about will always be present with us, especially the more involved we are in media and social media and news and advertisement because the machine is fueled and supported by our irrational responses because of the stirring up of our fear and anxiety. Therefore, as people who serve another king other than the government of the United States, we need to be aware of this reality so that we can live into our heavenly calling as citizens not primarily of earth, but primarily of heaven, living out a citizenship in the kingdom of man that manifests the truth and the beauty of the kingdom of God. And I certainly am not immune. I would say, and I've shared openly in here, and I share openly with our students on Wednesday nights, that without the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and empowering me to manage it, anxiety is one of the things that I uh, struggle with. I have struggled with all of my life. And so, for me, without setting my intention through mindful prayer, anxiety is the default atmosphere of my inner life. And if peace and anxiety are the thermometers of my heart, in other words, they're the things that measure the atmosphere, if peace and anxiety are the thermometers of my heart, then mindful prayer is the thermostat. And I love that because the thermostat, I can look and gauge whatever the atmosphere may be, but then I have the power to make a choice to adjust that thermostat. And making the choice to adjust the thermostat changes the atmosphere. So although the atmosphere I can't control, I do have control about whether or not I own my responsibility for the power that I have to adjust that thermostat. For me, the moment I wake up, I'm immediately flooded with the concerns about which I am anxious. And because of my personality, they're also what are on my mind as I drift off to sleep. And then they're like, like an obnoxious little troll at the foot of the bed when I open my eyes. They're there going, hey, we've been waiting for you. We gave you three and a half hours. It's time to pick up our conversation again. And I'm just like, Ugh. But that's why the first battle of my day is won or lost within seconds of my waking up. And and luckily, over time, as I've embraced that reality, it's introduced me to a larger reality, which is they can remind me to turn my gaze toward Jesus. And so now they're not little trolls. They're my little buddies. I wake up and they say, you're welcome to talk with us, but we suggest you turn to your Savior. And to which I say, thank you, anxieties. I think I will ignore you for now. And I turn my gaze toward my Savior. So now this rhythm has caused the first battle of the day to become the first blessing of the day. Because it helps my soul set its gauge in a way that's going to impact all of the other interactions that follow me in the moments that come behind. Well, what about you? Think for just a moment. We won't want to, I don't want to dwell on this too long. But think just a moment about your own anxieties. Specifically, what are the most common sources of your anxiety? Because one of the things that I've noticed in this journey is it's always helpful for me to recognize that from one season of the next, the, the 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 source of my anxieties are going to be different. It kind of depends on the state of the nation, the state of my marriage, the state of the church, the state of my children. I mean, at various different phases of their life, there was a different set of anxieties that I had to wrestle with. And I thought would eventually go away once they walked down the aisle and got their degrees and started giving me money back. But That is not the case. It just alters the nature of the anxiety that I feel. And guess what? Here's, (laughs) I don't want to discourage you young parents, but here's the fun part of having anxiety over adult kids. You think you don't have control now? (laughs) Whatever control you feel you have today, I promise you embrace it because it is diminishing by the second. And And so it changes, but it's still there and it still presents to me the same challenge. Well, Paul is going to talk about this in Philippians 2 through 7. And what I find is interesting this morning is that as we look at this passage, you'll see that when Paul addresses issues of prayer and anxiety, he very wisely does so first by addressing one of the most common sources of anxiety, relational tension. (laughs) Thank you for the visible groans. I love that. Relational tension has done more to equip mature disciples than any other topical Bible memory system or any book or any seminar can ever do. Relational tension is your gift because relational tension is the thing that forces us to not just run away and hide, but to embrace the challenges of community so that we ourselves are transformed in the process. You need relational tension. God wants to use your marriage to mature you. So sometimes you have to go through seasons where a successful marriage looks like being overwhelmed with constant relational tension. So how are you guys doing this morning? Don't answer aloud. But it's not just there. Think about the sources of anxiety that come from work, that come from other relationships, extended family, weird boundaries that you've set and you're trying to renegotiate with the people in your life, or even just... just Some of the silliness that you might walk, run into by driving from Lone Grove to Ardmore and walking through Walmart. Relational tension abounds. And so he begins with addressing relational tension and then he goes on to address the larger issue. He teaches us that prayer can effectively cultivate an experience of of peace amid anxiety. Philippians 2 through 3, he says this, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the lord. Now this is very important that he adds that last statement. Because as you said here, as we've said here, we're not looking for everyone in this community to have to agree with all the points of doctrine. We don't have to agree with all the ports of uh, of theology. We don't have to agree with the best music genre to use in worship. We don't have to have agreement on these things, but we do have to learn how to embrace our differences in a way that we not simply tolerate, but we can lovingly affirm one another in the process. So the key for us is not that simply that we have to agree, but what we have to agree with is in the Lord. At the end of the day, regardless of our various spiritual journeys, our, our, and, and, and There's not enough written on this, but one thing I've noticed, we like to think our spirituality and theology comes from our commitment to objective truth. But if you talk with people long enough, you'll see personality temperaments. They lend us to liking and preferring one theology over the other. And so oftentimes, even our doctrines and theology are saying more about us than the things that we believe. And so, what we are trying to do here is not say, okay, everybody, let's all agree on the same ideological line here, but let's agree on this Jesus is beautiful. He is a savior that will never fail. He is within us as the hope of glory. And as we together learn to expand our awareness and consciousness of Christ within. So that the power of Christ animates who we are. We can live and display the fruit of the spirit in such a powerful way that it will transform us, our families, our communities, and our world. That we can agree on. We may disagree on the it's, ifs, ands, or buts and the hows of how this happens, but we can create unity under the banner that Jesus is Lord and knowing him as Savior, Lord, and friend has a significant impact on the direction and the health of our lives. And so, and so what he emphasizes, they have to agree in the Lord, and he says, yes, and then I ask you, and then he says, sometimes the community has to be commuted to this unity because sometimes we have to help one another. He says in verse three, yes, I also ask you true partner to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, it may seem for a moment, this seems a little awkward that he's mentioning you, and Sintychi, specifically by name in a public letter, but clearly the reason why, is doing this and again it's also good because it also corrects the misunderstandings of Paul Paul empowered women for leadership and ministry there's no way of escaping it. Now, can you look at a few verses, rip them out of context, and rethink them in a way that's oppressive to women? Of course you can. But if you are open in your heart and you look at the overall direction of Paul's life, he empowered women for leadership and ministry. And this is one of those great examples. He lists them among his group of coworkers contending for the gospel. So I think the reason why he mentioned these ladies... By name is because they are modeling leadership for the community, and it is of, and of utmost, even of more importance, that they take to heart their responsibility to model disagreeing while still being of one mind in the Lord. So he highlights this reality. And in fact, really, all he's doing in Philippians 4 2 is he's urging a practical modeling and embodiment of the exhortation we see in Philippians 2.2, 2, which is this, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent, On one purpose. He is asking Euodia and Syntyche to respond to that exhortation, and if need be, he's referring to someone, we don't know who he or she is, but someone he considers his partner at Philippi to please help work with these women so that they can come to this place of understanding and agreement where they're modeling this exhortation of Philippians 2.2 to think the same way and have the same love united in the Spirit intent on one purpose. We can disagree on the trivialities while still holding unity as we're intent on a larger purpose. Then he moves right into this principle in Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7. Let's read it together. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, let's look at just kind of the three ideas here. Um, where he, 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 he speaks about peace, prayer, and anxiety. And if you want, what you can see in this verse is that peace is the what, prayer is the how, and anxiety is the why. Peace is what we're looking for. Prayer is how I get there. And the reason why I need this peace is because without this peace, I'm overwhelmed with the reality of my own anxiety or anxiousness of spirit. Now, now notice Paul's wording here. He says, do not be anxious about anything. We are not commanded to never experience anxiety, but to refuse to be anxious, and that's very important distinction. If what you think I'm saying is there's a moment where you're so powerful in Christ that stress and anxiety are, I, are, are things you no longer have to contend with, I assure you, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. There is no, there is no flippant triumphalism here. Stress and anxiety circumstances will always be present in our lives, but we have a choice to respond to them in such a way that they begin to define who we are or we are empowered to find god's grace in the midst of them so that we can grow through them and even beyond them so we're not told we're not told to get rid of opportunities for anxiety but to refuse to be an anxious people if by the power of the life of christ within we would prioritizing practicing the appeal that paul makes in this section of scripture and I can guarantee you that the Holy Spirit will transform us, and that's part of the invitation. In general, we can't control circumstances that bring anxiety, because anxiety presents itself every single day. Now, again, I, I don't want to take too much of this time, but with an audience, I don't want to, this size. I don't want to be irresponsible either. That there are times when you're in a toxic environment or a toxic relationship or a non-boundary relationship where you can have some control over your circumstances. Namely, maybe in this season, you need to remove yourself from those circumstances. So I'm not speaking to those kinds of situations. Of course, they're out there and we have to be wise about that. But what I am saying that there's this other level of constant anxiety that we are invited to participate in and we just can't control. I can't control what the economy is going to do. I can't control how people are going to interpret me. I can't control how they're going to react based on those interpretations. You can't control my choices. I can't control yours. And you know what? We can each make choices that might bring anxiety into one another's lives. So that I can't control. But what I can control is my response. we can control our choice to respond with either worry or mindful prayer. These are two options that are always present before us whenever anxiety floods our way. When that anxiety happens, there's a choice. I can respond with worry or I can respond with mindful prayer either choice is going to have a significant impact on the atmosphere of my heart and therefore on the atmosphere of all the relationships in which I am connected. Anxiety and peace are atmospheres that compete to guard our hearts. You know, that's that's where we're moving at this. Well, then if you do these things and the peace of God will guard your heart, well, if I don't do those things, what's guarding my heart? Anxiety will be guarding my heart. Peace and anxiety are two atmospheres that vie for the control of being the guardian over my heart. So take a deep breath and close your eyes and just ask your heart, which is guarding your heart today? In this very moment, which is keeping watch over your heart? Anxiety or the peace of God? The atmosphere that's in our heart creates an energy that overflows and affects every relationship and circumstance in which we participate. I had a little misunderstanding and conflict with one of my daughters this week. And of course I was justifiably displeased with their immaturity and wrongness of perspective. And I just backed away to create some space for the Holy Spirit to show them how right I am. It's a strategy I use with my wife from time to time as well. And I had this transformative moment that I had to sneak away by myself because the Holy Spirit convicted me that this communication issue has its roots way down in the history of our life together. And as I sat and listened, the Holy Spirit gave me grace to see this is one of the unintended consequences of parenting out of fear. I didn't feel shamed. I didn't feel rejected. I felt the loving, motherly presence of the Holy Spirit in that moment, bringing affirmation and saying, you can't hate yourself, but you also can't be blind to this. You didn't want this consequence, neither did she, but this is on you. It's a consequence from parenting out of fear when she was seven, eight, nine, and 10 years old. And so I'd step back and push back the fleshly temptation to be overwhelmed with guilt and shame, because that was my first reaction response. But I realize even that's a way of bypassing the lesson that's right in front of me. Because if I do that, then I still won't grow from this revelation. So I just sat and wept and let it wash over me. I made confession of my sin, and then I confessed to my daughter, and I realized this is the beauty of walking with the Holy Spirit. And it also reminds me that making the choice to not have a rhythm of prayer and to let fear and anxiety drive the motivations of my heart creates consequences that I don't intend and nor do I want and therefore, I did the best I could back then, but now I know better. And so I am responsible before the Lord to choose better now that that space has been created. So that atmosphere, the energy of our hearts impacts every relationship and circumstance in which we find ourselves. The question we must ask is, are we projecting anxiety or are we projecting shalom? Whether we're conscious of it or not, the atmosphere in our heart affects the atmosphere of our lives. So then he goes on to say, in every situation, because some situations are just going to have stress and anxiety, present your request to God. Now, I'm I'm not going to talk a lot about the mechanics of prayer. A year ago, we did a whole six-week series on how to pray. You can go back and take a look at that, but honestly, you probably won't want to because there are so many great, better pieces on YouTube or whatever at this point, other books. We've got all that information to talk about the mechanics of prayer. And honestly, if you're really confused about it, set an appointment. I would love to sit with you and just say, hey, this is how I pray. If it helps you, then you pray with me for a few weeks and see what's helpful. But that's not the sermon Today, because, what I want, because the problem with talking about the mechanics of prayer is that it reinforces the idea that prayer is a utility to serve your needs rather than a conversation with your friend and Savior. And, and that, I think, is one of the biggest problems is evangelicals treat prayer the way the Harry Potter world treats their magical wands. That if I just say the right things and do the right flick, then I'll get the thing that I want to help make my circumstance better. This is not prayer. Prayer is the thing that makes your journey with your partner go from a wedding to a marriage. Conversation does that. We don't just write each other letters and never spend time in one another's presence, really getting to know one another's vulnerability in an intimate way and we don't do that with prayer either because we treat it as a utility for getting stuff done when really it's an invitation into intimacy with your with your savior with your creator so that's I'm not going to emphasize that this morning what i want to say and emphasize is that the way that a jesus follower avoids living in an atmosphere of anxiety is by cultivating an atmosphere of peaceful presence And we cultivate this atmosphere of presence by living a rhythm of mindful prayer. And why do you say mindful prayer? Because I'm not talking about mechanical prayer. I want to emphasize prayer is the primary way that we practice being with Jesus. Prayer is the primary way that we practice being with Jesus not the primary way we get our miracle. It's not the primary way we get stuff done. It's not the primary way we get enough gumption to stop saying TT and doo-doo and have a more moral life. That is not what it's for. Prayer is the primary way that we practice being with Jesus. And if prayer is not foremost and first that, then it's really just kind of baptized witchcraft to where I'm going to learn the right things to say, to try to control the circumstances of my life. I'm We are invited to something deeper than that. We are divided... We're invited to something deeper than the manipulation of circumstance. We are invited into participation and partnership with the God who's always continuing to create in the midst of every circumstance. And we can participate with that rhythm of, of, of of creativity as we engage in a practice of prayer. So therefore, my friends... Anxiety, I want to submit, is an invitation to intimacy. Anxiety is an invitation to intimacy. Anxiety is the sensation that allows us to be aware when we drift from the conscious presence of God. I didn't say presence of God because you never will. But you can make choices to drift away from the conscious awareness of the presence of God. Therefore, anxiety is not the monster that threatens our well-being, but rather the friend that beckons our return to the presence of God, if we will allow them to do their job. And how do we return? It's not complicated. We return by simply yielding our soul's gaze to the God who is love with us. Or maybe even to more boldly say it to the God who is love within us. That's where we begin. Whatever means you use to turn your soul's gaze, I applaud. They may not be ways that work for me, but if they work for you, more power to you. But you have to answer that question. A preacher in a book can't answer that question for you. But you have to know it. You have to be aware What are the practices that for you empower you to turn your soul's gaze back to the God who is love with us in the flesh? This yielding will happen the moment we invite God into the experience of our anxiety. Thus, anxiety becomes the stuff of our conversation with our Lord. (laughs) Every morning, for years before church, I gather with the elders for what we call elder prayer. Do you know what elder prayer is before it's elder prayer? It's a rehearsal of our collective anxiety. That becomes the stuff of prayer. We have to talk about things we'd rather not talk about in order to bring these things into the presence of God. And there are times that sometimes we overdo it. We're talking to one another too much and not talking to God enough. And you'll feel it in the atmosphere because it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And we'll sit there and finally, someone, the elders, the leaders of your church, someone in that group will have the wisdom say, well, maybe we ought to go ahead and pray. (laughs) And as soon as we do, we bow our heads and all of a sudden, we're not under the pressure of anxiety. We're in the atmosphere of the spirit, the atmosphere of liberty, the atmosphere of wisdom. We may not know what to do, but there's one in our midst who promises to be in our midst he knows exactly what to do. So we get to then move from anxiety to realigning ourselves in faith to the wisdom of God. Anxiety can become the stuff of your conversation with the Lord. And it says the result is that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God is the fruit of the presence of God. Notice here that the promise is not a glib triumphalism that promises that the sources of our anxiety will disappear. It doesn't say that. It says that the promise is that God's peace will guard your hearts amid anxiety. That's the promise. And it hearkens to the wisdom of Proverbs 4.23 where, 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 where the author writes, above all else, guard your heart, For everything you do flows from it. Everything we do flows from the atmosphere of our hearts. For me, this means that everything I do do flows either from anxiety or from peace. As we said before earlier, peace is the what, prayer is the how, and anxiety is the why. Thus, my daily experience of peace begins with contending with my anxiety. So the very thing that I used to rail against and to hate, I'm able to take a deep breath and say, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for this avenue of invitation to intimacy. So we will experience the peace of God during anxiety if we create a practical rhythm of prayer. So now let's turn as we close to some of those practices. Remember, what Paul does is he sets this conversation of prayer and anxiety in the context of relational tension, which I think is is very, it's very wise. I know that we create anxiety based just because of our own struggles of our own flesh and our own choices. But as I reflect upon my life and as you reflect upon yours, we probably would come to an agreement and say, but the majority of my stress involves other people. It's like I heard uh, I read a cynical author who I really love, but I don't want to take all my life cues from, uh, the other day he said, I don't hate people. I just seem to feel a lot better when they're not around. And uh, I was like, it's kind of anti-community, but I got to be honest. There's a part of me that says, amen brother. And so, and so, because the reality is relational tension is a significant source of a lot of our stress. And so we have to be willing to go through a process with the Holy Spirit of recognizing that. So a few ideas for your practice. Uh, Number one, you need to name it to tame it. In other words, for me, anxiety is ambiguous. Now, if I don't question the, the ambiguous nature of my anxiety, I will just live the day with a sense of dread. I don't know why I feel dread, but it's just there. And I'm kind of waiting around every corner for whatever the thing is to jump out and get me. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes I make it happen because I'm so focused on it. And so, so the first thing that I want to be aware of is I want to name it to claim it. How do I know that I'm anxious rather than I'm just, you know, out of sorts or whatever? Well, for me, and if this is helpful for you, it, 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 I, I would commend it to you. Number one, I check with my body. There are certain places in my body where I feel the anxiety more than others. And as I've shared my journey with others, I realize we're not all the same. Some people feel it in their neck. Some people feel it between their shoulder blades. For me, my anxiety is felt right here in the center of my gut. When I was young, I think second grades, I had severe panic attacks every morning, dropped off at school. And, uh, and I would react very strongly physically and emotionally in, in ways that you know I could be embarrassed about as a 50-year-old, but hey, I was just doing what, the best I could when I was seven years old. But what I do remember now that I've, I'm decades removed from that, and I don't struggle with that anymore in the same way, uh, but what I've noticed the other day is that the sensation that I feel right here was exactly the sensation that was present when I was seven years old, having complete breakdown panic attacks. And I don't do that anymore, but the same place is where my anxiety, that's where I'm first going to feel it. I'm gonna feel it right here in the center of my gut. And so I'm gonna pay attention to that. Is this ambiguous? Is this just the ambiguous fear that's set in here to distract me? If it is, I'm gonna let it go. But I'm gonna take a moment to say, okay, why is my gut feeling this way? What is going on? Why am I anxious? And immediately, I'm going to go to a circumstance or maybe a conflict, or I'm going to think about what do I fear. But here's what's interesting. If I will explore, I'm anxious because of this person. I'm anxious because of this, uh, th- this uh, circumstance. I am, I am anxious because of this fear. What I need to get down to is the, answering the question, what do I need? Because I have discovered That the vast majority of times there's an unspoken need that I fear God won't take care of. I've got to get down to that point where I can name it and bring that into the presence of God because oftentimes our fears and anxieties are just a reversal way of our mind telling us that we're neglecting something that we need and you know what the holy spirit is so powerful and wise and tender if we will open ourselves up in the presence of god like the psalmist says spirit search my heart and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting psalm 139 the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal that. Now, it may take layers. I'm mad at this circumstance. Well, no, I'm mad at this circumstance because this person is going to be there. Well, I'm mad at this person because X, Y, Z. Or I'm mad because I'm so committed to excellence. I want to make sure this project is perfect. Really? Why do you need that? Is there someone you're trying to impress? Mm, well, maybe. Or maybe it's not someone to impress. Maybe it's just I want to project an ideal of success, and I'm afraid of what would happen if that gets threatened. I never know exactly, but if I start asking those questions, I get past the surface down down to what's really going on in my heart, and that's where the good stuff happens, my friends. That's when the Holy Spirit works the change that begins to transform our lives and liberate us. Secondly, when it comes to our relationships, these are just wisdom from my journey. I'm not telling you have to do this, but if it's helpful, then great, then it's yours practice listening to learn rather than listening to defend practice discerning the posture of your heart because every person in our life is our teacher and if we're willing to ask questions until we understand their frustrations viewpoints and experiences we might learn something about ourselves my suggestion is if this is life-affirming to you and it fits where you are in your journey with the Lord, then own the truth that your projections, offense, and judgments are first and foremost revelations of your own heart. Maybe only revelations of your own heart. I mean, this has become such a truth in my soul that the moment I hear someone complaining about someone else, I'm going, you're just telling me about you. I've just gotten a lot more insights into you, way more than I have the person you're talking to me about. And then when I start complaining about someone, I stop and say, oh, I just revealed my heart. I didn't say anything of revelation about them. That was just assumptions. The revelation was what was revealed about what's in the atmosphere of my own heart, and then I'm projecting upon them. In other words, my assumptions of the motives of others are always projections of the motives of my own heart. And we have to keep that in mind. Secondly, and I've been working on this for a few years now, since I heard it two years ago, uh, Steve Cuss, who's an anxiety coach, which I didn't even know they had those, but apparently they have anxiety coaches. So there you got your pick, a life coach, anxiety coach, or death coach. Uh, there are all kinds of coaches out there. Uh, but but, but he, he, he's the one that turned me on this idea of the life-giving list. And I love it because it shows how practical the Holy Spirit uses all the natural means of our life to deliver to us the grace that we need in the moment that we need it. Who and what are the people, places, and activities that bring life to you and remind you of God's presence and kindness towards you? Write those things down. I didn't know where they were, but when I wrote the list, I realized I had them. My back porch, for example, at least three times a week, I sit on my back porch. After the sun goes down, I play an evening jazz playlist, and I sit and I listen and I thank God. Sometimes I light up my pipe, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I turn off my music and listen to the songs of the cicadas, crickets, toads, and raccoons. But all of that has become, for me, a sanctuary it's my sacred place that moves me just as much as if I were, were, were to be uh, walking into the grandest of cathedrals. So where are those? Where are those people? We're the people that actually celebrate you, not love you in spite of yourself and not tolerate you, although we need those people too. But there are a few of those people out of that group. They celebrate you. Who are the people who celebrate you? Write them down places the destinations places that are accessible what about the activities you can prayer as you walk your dog or sometimes in the evening i'll just read some of my favorite poems and my soul is comforted i don't know what it is for you my son-in-law likes to be on the pond or in the pond or around the pond catching fish and and it's his and he comes back in and he's like all zened up so I don't know what it is for you, but know what those activities are. Write them down so when you can't remember, you can run to them. The people, places, activities that bring us life, I would suggest prepare us for prayer. Now think for just a moment, my potentially anxious congregation. What if we began to view our anxiety not as an enemy to be conquered, but rather as a friend inviting us back into intimacy with our Maker? who is love with us. Or maybe just as a friend that are reminding ourselves that we're doing some things that are causing ill health at some level of our being. And the anxiety is a reminder to take a moment to pause and to readjust. So as you all stand and the worship team comes forward, what I would like for you to pray about as you respond and you come to the Lord's table are these two homework assignments. Number one, Today, before dinner, you have to begin your life-giving list. Put it in your phone notes, get you a journal, leave here and go buy a new pretty journal and pen from Hobby Lobby if you want to. But get the list started. Start writing out your life-giving list. Number two, your assignment is pick one and do it today, not out of habit, but from the newfound revelation that you received by hearing the sermon this morning.